this week's passage. So we'll begin the reading at verse 4, and we will go through verse 13. So Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 4, and reading until verse 13. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father in heaven, again we pray for the Spirit of God to open our eyes and to be our teacher to make Christ precious to us, for us to see him here in the word, and for you to give us the wisdom we need to understand it and to obey it, to connect it to our lives, to have hearts that are agreeable to your commands, to rejoice in you, and to go out living as your people. So that's a gift of your grace, and we pray for it this morning and pray, above all, that you would be glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout Romans for several uh, weeks now, we have noted how Paul often weaves together in his writing a sense of doctrine and story. Now, Romans has well served the church throughout the years as a letter that provides both basic and meaty theological instruction. It's often been used to teach new Christians the faith and at other times an outline of here's the Christian faith for all of God's people. You have truths as basic as here's why we need to be saved to truths that deal with God's sovereignty and salvation. So the letter covers a lot of ground in the way it presents the Christian faith and that's intentional. Paul wrote this letter to a church that he had never met. He knew people there, but he had never visited this church. And he wants them to support him in his upcoming mission to Spain. So he lays it out. Here's the gospel I preach. Here's what this faith is all about. You can trust me and you can support me. And at the same time, Paul also seems driven by a sense of story as he writes this letter. You've noticed how Romans is saturated with the Old Testament. Paul is intent on showing how the Bible's big story, its broad outline, comes to a culmination in Christ. He tells how Jesus is Lord over the nations 
and that the church calls the nations to submit to that lordship. That's the opening paragraph. And he goes on to show how through Jesus, God solves the universal problem of human sin for Jews and Gentiles alike, a theme he'll return to in today's passage. And as God solves this problem, he creates this worldwide family of faith, fulfilling the promises made to Abraham. And now bringing his people through the new exodus and the journey to the promised land. He's going through the Bible story. And even where we reach a point where Israel isn't participating in the story, Paul looks at the story afresh to show us that God is sovereign over the story. He's bringing it to its design ends. And again, that is on purpose. Paul cares about the church at Rome practically. He knows there's Jews and Gentiles in the church. There's some tension in the church. There's some division in the church. And so he tries to unite them around this sense of common mission, common identity, sharing in God's story. He trusts that will rally them to do the work God's given them to do and to live together as God's people. Well, today's passage then is really... Another installment in the story. The next episode, we might say. But it's not just the next part. This part directly challenges the other stories. You see, Paul isn't the only one telling a story in his day. The Jews are telling a story. The different groups in Israel are telling stories. And it would be accurate to say they are, in a sense, all telling the same story. But they disagree on the solution that moves the story forward. You see, they all agree that Israel is suffering the curse of God for violating the covenant. And you say, wait, I thought you said they were self-righteous. They thought their obedience to the law would secure God's blessing. Exactly. They were working to secure God's blessing because they believed they had lost something along the way. You see, when you read your Old Testament and you find Israel going into exile, into Babylon, that's a devastating event for the nation and for the people of God. Their temple, that central place, that powerful symbol was destroyed. Jerusalem was burned. People died. The survivors were taken away into a foreign land. It was was a seismic event. It shook them to their core. You read some of the Psalms in exile, they're mourning. And yes, Israel returned. Israel rebuilt the temple, but it was nothing like what they had before. And there were still oppressive nations around them. And the promises of the prophets hadn't been completely fulfilled. And so as Israel reads their Old Testament, they read Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and 29 that warns them, these are the curses that will come upon you if you break my covenant. And that weighs heavy on them. And they're longing to turn the page. They want to get into Deuteronomy 30. That's where you find the promises of restoration. And that's where the rival solutions enter the picture. As we've often said, the Pharisees had their program. This is how we can bring God's blessing to our nation. Let's extend the ritual purity of the priests to everybody. And let's develop traditions that tell us exactly how to do that. 
The Sadducees had their own program of compromise with Rome, carve out a measure of power in order to keep the peace. The Zealots, they just wanted to blow everything up. And the Essenes said, hey, we're out of here. This place is too corrupt. They formed their own separate community down in the Dead Sea area. In fact, we even have a a document from the Dead Sea Scrolls that quotes Deuteronomy 30. And it says, if people will follow our understanding of the law, then God will recognize us as his people. So in the midst of all those competing solutions, guess who else quotes Deuteronomy 30? Guess who else has a solution to offer to Israel and the world's troubles? It's the Apostle Paul. Right here in Romans chapter 10 in the passage we have read today. Here Paul shows us this is how God has graciously solved the problem of human sin. This is how God has provided righteousness for the world. And these are the terms by which you can enter and be identified as the people of God. So let's, look at, let's listen then to this passage this morning because it shows us how God saves and marks us as his people. And we'll look at it, we'll let it break down according to those two ideas. First, how God saves us. What's the solution that God has provided to our problem? Well, we ended last week's sermon with verse 4. And that serves as the hinge between last week's message and today's passage. On the one hand, it concludes the previous paragraph. It says, here's the solution for Israel's misguided pursuit of righteousness through the law. And at the same time, it sets up the argument of verses 5 through 8. Why is Christ the culmination of the law? Because he provides the righteousness that the law couldn't provide, but also to which the law pointed. Let's look at both of those. First, let's talk about the righteousness the law couldn't provide. Paul writes in verse 5, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Once again, Paul is citing the Old Testament, Leviticus 18.5. And here's where that verse fits in the flow of the Old Testament. When God rescued Israel from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, he gave them his covenant and his laws, and he commanded Israel to keep them. And in Exodus, God gives us the Ten Commandments. And then there's a large body of various civil laws. And then you have detailed regulations about the tabernacle. Then you turn the page into the next book, Leviticus. And those instructions continue. Israel, here's how you are to worship and to sacrifice. Israel, here's how you are to live in the land the Lord is giving you. And in the middle of one of those chapters that gives instructions on how to live in the land, God tells them, keep my decrees and laws. For the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. 
Now, sometimes when you read the Bible, maybe a verse just seems to rise above the others. It kind of captures a big theme. We might say it expresses the main idea. I don't mean it's more true than the other verses. It's just a verse that says, here's the point. Here's the big picture. Well, Leviticus 18.5 is one of those verses in the Bible. If Israel wants to live, if they want to be in the land God has given them, then they must keep God's commands. And if they do not, they will be expelled from the land. They will not live. They will die. Sound familiar? It's kind of like the Garden of Eden story again. Now, here's what's interesting about this verse. It's reused several times in the Old Testament. It's reused in Jewish literature between the Old and New Testaments. In fact, one scholar calls this verse the John 3.16 of early Judaism. And when these authors employ this verse, they use it to say, if you want to have life, keep these commandments. So you see the John 3.16 idea? Just here's the basic answer. You want to live? Keep these commandments. So why does Paul employ it here because he sees what these other authors are seeing this verse captures the essence of the old testament law according to the law of moses doing is the way to life or as another scholar puts it blessing is contingent on obedience blessing and obedience are tightly tethered in the old testament if you want to be righteous by means of the law, then you must obey it perfectly. And again, as we said last week, that is a legitimate strand of Old Testament teaching. The law wants us to hear that message. God gave his commands and said, keep them. It's not optional. But here's what else God wants us to see. And this is what Paul is trying to show us. That's not the full answer. That's not the solution to the problem of human sin. Sin enters the picture and makes it where you can't keep the law. And so Israel saw part of the picture, but they didn't see the full picture. And so that's what Paul wants to do. He wants to fill in the picture from them and use the Old Testament to do it. So look at these next verses, verses 6 to 8. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Now this time, Paul cites the book of Deuteronomy, two books after the book of Leviticus. When God gave his law again to the second generation of Israelites who are going to enter the promised land. We we already have disaster with generation number one. So God repeats the law and he gives some gracious promises when he does. Now Paul cites then from that book two sections. First, from Deuteronomy 9.4, that phrase, do not say in your heart That comes from the section of Deuteronomy where Moses warns the people, don't assume it's your might, don't assume it's your goodness that gains for you the promised land. The promised land is a gift. 
Israel, don't think you've earned it on the basis of your righteousness. And the second citation comes from Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14, where Moses describes the gracious provision of the law. Israel, you don't have to go up into heaven and find the law. You don't have to cross land or sea and find the law. God brought the law to you, and he brought it to you so you can keep it. You familiar with Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. That's where Paul is citing from, the very next chapter. And he's saying, yes, God did that. Secret things belong to him, but he told you his will. He gave you his law so that you can do it. Now, here's the only question. Why does Paul cite verses that say God has revealed his law to you so that you can obey it and use them to say, Israel, you should seek righteousness from Jesus and not the law. What is he trying to make this hard for himself? Degree of difficulty, so to speak. Here's why Paul cites those verses. He hasn't made a mistake. He's been intentional. He cites those verses because he wants Israel to see the rest of the picture. He wants them to see where the law was pointing. And here's his logic. We saw at the beginning of the sermon, Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, they warn Israel, you're going into exile if you don't keep my commandments. It echoes Leviticus 18, 5. You won't have life if you don't obey me. But Deuteronomy 30 promises, Israel, if you return to God, he will rescue you from exile. He will change your hearts and you will finally keep his law. You won't have to go up to heaven and get it. You won't have to cross the sea. God will bring it to you graciously. And again, that's what so many Israelites in Paul's day and in Jesus's day were wondering, when will that happen? How will we know? And do we have to do anything to make it happen? And so Paul quotes the text to say, it has happened and it has happened in Jesus. He has come down from heaven. He has perfectly obeyed the law. And he has been raised from the dead after suffering the curse that is due to us for our sin. You don't have to go up into heaven and get him just like you didn't have to go up and get the law. You don't have to go down into the grave and bring him up from the dead. God's already raised him. He has provided what you need. And if you say, well, how did Paul see that? Is that a legitimate use of Deuteronomy? Here's what he's saying. Once upon a time, God graciously gave you the law. It showed you his will. It was part of his program. And now, in the same way, he has graciously given you Christ. He's filled in the picture. He's done what the law couldn't provide it, and he sowed the seeds for it all the way back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So Israel, how does God save you? He saves you through Christ. Church, how does God save us? Graciously, through the finished work of Christ, on the basis of faith, not what we do. Salvation is all about God's work, not ours. 
And what is the Bible about? What is Christianity all about? What is the church all about? God's grace in Christ. And that challenges us. All right, we have to submit to God's gracious way of salvation. We're not allowed to pursue our own ideas of what pleases God or what it means to be a Christian. We have to submit to that, but there's grace here. God has done what needs to be done. Christianity and faith, it's not about these superhuman accomplishments. It's not about this over-the-top accomplishments. It's about receiving by faith what God has provided. That is how God saves us. So let's move on to the second idea. And let's see how God marks us. We keep saying There's these different groups in Paul's day, and they have these different ideas about what Israel needs to do to secure God's blessing. Another way of asking that question is to say, what will, what does a true Israelite look like? How can you identify God's people when he acts to save them? Who has or what are the marks that God gives his people? Who will God recognize? As his people on the last day, Paul gives us his answer in verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith, and are saved. Who are God's people in the last days? Those who confess that Jesus is Lord. Those who believe that God raised him from the dead. And why does Paul mention just the resurrection? Because that's shorthand for the whole gospel. The the resurrection is the essence, the the capturing moment. It kind of summarizes everything that God does for us in the gospel. So do you trust in that work on your behalf and do you submit to Jesus as Lord? Because if you do, God marks you as his people. He says those are the people for whom Deuteronomy 30 is coming true. These are the people who are saved from the final judgment. And friends, I I love how simple it is. I love how simply, basically, Paul identifies a Christian. Do you believe? Do you trust? Do you receive and rest upon the one who lived and died in your place? And if you do, do you swear allegiance to him as Lord? That's just a very basic description of a Christian. And it's good to know we aren't marked by elaborate acts of obedience. We aren't marked by denominational markers. We aren't marked by any external marker. We are marked by our belief and by our confession that Jesus is Lord. And by the way, when it comes to those two steps, sometimes people have seen them. What if you have one without the other? The point isn't that they're two acts. They're just, they aren't two steps of salvation, so to speak. Uh, They're the descriptions of a Christian from the inside, and perhaps we could say from the outside. They believe the gospel in their heart. 
They give their allegiance to Jesus. That's how you recognize God's people in the last days. And by the way, not only do these verses give us Paul's solution, but they also tell us why we should listen to his solution and not to any other solution. Why is Paul's solution right and the other solutions wrong? Because God has raised Jesus from the dead. And none of the other groups can claim a solution like that. They can claim persecution. They can claim martyrdom. They can claim power. They can't claim God's approval like Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because God has vindicated him. God has chosen us. He is the solution. God has kicked off those promises of the prophets. What's going to happen in the last days? There's going to be resurrection. There's going to be justification. God started it in Jesus. And so now everyone who connects to him, everyone who identifies with him, participates in those promises. And if you do that, you will never be disappointed by him. Verse 11 says, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's that verse again from Isaiah. We saw it last week in 9.33. When the judgment comes at the end of the day, those who trust in the Lord will be saved. Doesn't mean God won't try you along the way. Doesn't mean God won't shake you along the way. But when all is said and done, in the very end, when God shows up, those who trust in him will not be disappointed. And that solution is for everyone, Jews as well as Gentiles. Verse 12, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Why does Paul return to this theme? Because he's talking about righteousness through the law versus righteousness through Christ. Righteousness through the law, that creates difference. But righteousness through Christ, that's available for all. God's salvation through Jesus, it's the solution for Israel's story, and it's good news for the whole world. It solves their problem of sin. And so Paul concludes with the assurance of verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. One more time, an Old Testament citation, but we won't chase this one down. It's from Joel 2.32. And if you read Joel, you'll find this section from which Paul quotes. That's where God is talking about, all right, I'm going to show up one day and I'm going to accomplish my purpose for the nations. What is God's purposes for the nations? That everyone who calls on him will be saved. And that's why we keep saying Paul is operating with a sense of story. What is God doing in the world? What is God doing in history? What is God doing with this creation? He is working to rescue it from death. He is working to rescue it from sin. He is working to rescue you from exile, to bring you back to God and to give you the life that he originally gave to this creation, but that was spoiled through sin. That's why, by the way, Paul can cite that verse from Leviticus, a verse about obey God in order to live in the land. Moses knew and Paul knew. That's more than just getting good crops. You want to be a part of the life that God designed for his world, then you need to be right with him. 
you can't be right with him by doing. You can only be right with him by faith in Jesus. And so I ask in closing, are you marked by that fundamental confession of faith that Jesus is Lord? Once again, a challenge. The gracious gift of salvation brings allegiance to a new master. All of life must be lived for him. But there's grace too. God's offer of salvation is for all who confess that Jesus is Lord. That's good news for Israel. That's good news for the Gentiles too. Living in Rome where Caesar is Lord, there's one Lord. And it is Jesus Christ. And God will welcome everyone who believes the gospel and makes that basic confession. That's what it means for us as individuals. Do you know that grace? Here's what it means for us as a church. It means that we are called to be the people who extend that invitation to the world. We are the people who can extend God's welcome to the world. And my prayer for you this week, I'm going to pray for this church this week. I pray that someone that you know might know the welcome of Jesus after spending time with you. That however you act, however you speak of your faith, that you'll do it in such a way that people will sense the welcome of Jesus. That they will sense that Jesus invites people to come to him by faith and by simple confession. That they won't feel hindered. That they won't feel like it's complex. That they won't feel like they can't get to him. But they will know this welcome of Jesus. These basic requirements without anything extra added. And I'm going to pray too for you as individuals. I'm going to pray in everybody's heart. You know the welcome of Jesus. The unconditional love of God for you. And the simplicity of the requirements and the invitation he gives you. And you'll know that he's provided everything for your salvation. Freedom from sin. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from other rival stories that people might tell you, but that you have found the solution to the story in Jesus. Separation and exile, they're over. You can enjoy the life with God that he has provided. So let's give thanks to him. Pray for God to do those things in our lives. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus the Lord. Show us this week how to live under his lordship. Work in our hearts to know that you have welcomed us to the Son, that your solution for the world's problem is through Jesus and through swearing our allegiance to him is Lord. And so, Lord, give us the grace. Give us, transform us in such a way that we can extend that summons, that we can extend that welcome to those around us. May they sense through us that Jesus is Lord and that you invite the nations to come. Do for us what you must to transform us in that way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.